Hello, everyone. This is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast, uh, coming to you through the medium of Zoom today. Uh, normally, be doing it out in the wood shop, and really like to do that. But I also like it when I get these opportunities to reach out and uh, and spread the uh, the web of uh, this podcast a little deeper. And when you bring people into my life to do that, uh, when God brings people in my life to do that, uh, I look at that as a blessing. Um, really thought there for a while that my all the podcasts were going to go zoom but that wasn't uh didn't end up being the case when when the pandemic hit uh, i thought face-to-face podcasts might be a thing of the past for a while but uh some most of my guests are still willing to come over and sit six foot across the table from me and uh and 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 do the do the show so uh thankful for that too uh, a couple words about uh, DTM Woodworking Handyman, my little company here in uh, New Albany, Indiana, Louisville metro area. If you have any woodworking needs or handyman work you, that you want done, uh, please contact me at dan at dtmww.net. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery. 12-Step Spiritual Recovery is a book by James Christopher Cohn. Uh, Christopher is my sponsor. And uh, he has uh, taken the 12 steps in all of his 36 years of sobriety. He has wrapped up a uh, um, cliff note, so to speak, of uh, the way that he's been taught from the multiple teachers he's had on this journey and brought what was a lot of tribal knowledge into written form. We have a 12-step spiritual recovery, which we also call it briefly TSSR. We have uh, meetings here in Louisville, and of course, they're on Zoom, so anybody in the world can join those. If you're interested in joining those meetings, just uh, please let me know. I'm pretty available on Facebook, Instagram, either through DTM Woodwork or the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Um, the unique thing about this is it is the 12 steps for anybody and everybody. You do not have to have be an addict. You do not have to be alcoholic. Uh, you do not have to fit into any of the traditional 12-step fellowships. Uh, if you're just looking for some new tools and uh, maybe uh, a little more in your life, some new tools to operate on, uh, these may be what you are looking for. So once again, it's 12-step spiritual recovery. The book is out. It's on Amazon. And uh, you'll need to plug the author's name in there. Uh, it's C-O-N-E, like ice cream cone. So we'll get to the point at hand today. Um, so there's this thing I got invited to not too long ago, uh, and it's uh, I guess it, what it is is social media, and uh, it's called Clubhouse. And many of y'all may have already heard about it. Um, I'm still pretty new. I don't think I've been on it. Maybe two weeks, maybe. Uh, and as soon as I heard about it, my first thought was was recovery. I thought, hey, this is another cool, potentially cool tool for recovery. Uh, I do spend most of my life uh, doing something in the realm of recovery. And uh, so we started, I found the sober uh, club there and, and started meeting some new folks. And I throwed it out there that uh, any, I'm always looking for guests. I don't like to uh, push for guests. I don't, I, 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 I don't want to be that guy, but I also need to look, get the word out. And my guest today was the first person out of clubhouse that stepped up and said, sure, I'll do it. So uh, I was happy he uh, popped up and did that. I'm sure that he is not going to be the last one of those. Uh, I'm actually hosting a meeting uh, on Sunday nights on for the Sober Club, uh, um, a recovery meeting. It is not AA, it is not NA, it's just flat, straight up recovery. So uh, actually, uh, 
I don't even know where you live, man. Let's start off with your uh, sobriety date. Hey, Dan, uh, my sobriety date is actually December 14th of 2020. And that was just a I minute ago. At all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, so well, how, just so we keep it in context, what before that, how long had it been since uh, you'd had a drink? It had been seven months. Seven months. Seven okay. months prior to that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that is a very slope. It's, it's uh, uh, well, I don't, I almost want to say it's unfortunate, but I don't know that it is because I see everything as a stepping stone towards uh, a recovered state. And, uh, you know, in anything else you're doing in life, you're probably going to trip and slip a couple times as you're doing it. I don't care if you're learning to be a mechanic or a lawyer or whatever. Uh, why would it be the same with getting sober? Uh, you're gonna have those. Where are you from? Uh, Salina, Kansas. So we're a little more than six feet away from each other right now. <laughs> yeah, a little more. Say what the I missed the I heard the Kansas, but I missed the other part. Salina, so Salina. dead center, right in the crossroads of, of the U.S. I 70 and I 35 cross through here. Uh, is it C E L C E L I N A? It's S A L I N A. Okay. Uh, we got a little yep. place down the road here with that's called Salina and it's a C. Um, have you lived there all your life or? Yeah. So I was born just outside of uh, St. Louis, Creep Coeur. And uh, then my mom brought me back here when she said not to give me up for adoption. So that oh, was. How about that? It was a yeah, well, blessed little thing there. A lot of prayers went into action. She showed back up with me. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, uh, raised and, and lived here ever since well we have that in common too i've been a pretty uh i've been in, as a matter of fact i live in the same house i grew i grew up in uh ended up buying it from my parents later on in life had got up and got married and out and and then uh, they were looking to sell the house and uh and, and and i bought it from them um and then my mom passed away a few years ago and dad moved back in with me so now we're my me and my dad are living in this house again together uh and uh it's really been a blessing. So I'm really grounded and I am a homebody, man. I can't ever see myself really leaving this area. How do you feel? Is that, are you, are you pretty, how are you on that? Well, I had some shit hit the fan beginning of 2020 that, uh, that had me thinking maybe I need to move out of here. Oh, yeah. um, it's a smaller town, 50,000. And, uh, I actually had a, had an incident, uh, after getting out of treatment, um, where went on social media, I was put on blast on social media and um, went semi-viral. I'm a local real estate professional, mm. and uh, I own a brokerage here, so my my face is in a, a lot of yards. Yeah, so there's not many people who don't know of me or recognize me. So that was that was a real strike to the ego and to the pride. And you know, my first inkling was to get the hell out of here, but then. Uh, I don't know, like through the 12 step program, I learned that uh, running from something does not, does not at all. It just, it just makes it worse. Yeah. So I'm trying to hunker down and deal with those problems. Um, and uh, I'm to this day, I'm still feeling dealing with a lot of fallout professionally in my professional life and stuff and my personal life. It's, it's still a fallout from either those events or, or just my life. Um, my life with alcohol yeah uh, you know so how old are you takes an, i'm 39 39 um 
I, I'm, I'm not going to go into it at the moment, but I have, it's, there's another kind of bell, I call them bell ringers where I can relate to uh, that. I'd done something in my community here, specifically in my neighborhood that had me persona non grata. And I had thought about moving <laughs> and I stuck it out and stayed. Uh, I didn't know if uh, that was the best idea at the time, but, but I did, I hunkered in, like you said, and, uh, and, and stuck to it and, uh, had an opportunity to patch most of that up by now. Um, so uh, you said you were your mom had thought about putting you up for adoption and then and then didn't what was uh what was your child you know coming up what was your childhood like yeah she was uh she was 19 and uh she uh she didn't want to drag down uh, my biological father who who to this day doesn't know that i exist mm. uh, not not for lack of her being willing to to um Help me explore that. Just uh, she ended up meeting a man when I was five who um, asked me if he could marry her, and then asked me if he could adopt me. And um, I was blessed with an amazing father, and yeah. and my mom's an amazing mother. Um, she does struggle with alcohol and uh, has my whole life, so I have I have that uh, for a background. But I wouldn't say that you know we were a blue collar family, so I didn't. I didn't want for things really, you know, but I also didn't have a silver spoon by any means. Um, and, uh, I grew up, uh, as you said, my, my first name is Ashley. Most people are uh, more comfortable calling me Ash. It's, it's, you know, in my meetings, you know, I'd say this is Ash. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That's what you go by people's sake. Yeah. Okay. Actually I went to school with a couple other Ashley's that all, both of them went by their middle names. And uh, oh, wow. I, I kind of joke, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a sissy. Yeah. Um, but uh, the song Boy Named Sue, that was definitely part of my upbringing. Buck teeth, curly long, hair without haircuts, thick glasses, and a name like Ashley. I got in a lot of fights. I'll bet. Um, I, uh, that yeah. crossed my mind so I started, as, I, as I pondered. So I started it. winning some of them, you know, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden people didn't want to make fun of me anymore. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean... Um, Again, I, I didn't know if it was those things I just covered when I was a kid growing up, um, but I never felt like I fit in yep. um, with other kids, with uh, other groups of kids. You know, I'd have a friend. I'd have two friends maybe. Mm. And uh, it was due to proximity and just that struggling to fit in and seeing other people happy and laughing and perfectly fine like when I'd have a friend, you know, it was uh, always about what we were going to do or how we were going to hang out. And I just, I just don't remember a time where I was at peace sitting in a room by myself with my thoughts. Yeah. It, it just, it, it, it's always been something that was uncomfortable to me. It's another you bell ringer thing. I hear a lot of, you know, that, that never feeling comfortable in my own skin. Uh, there's hardly a person that sits at the podcast that doesn't mention that. And I mean, and this is from a young age, yeah. you know, before any re regrets or, or, you know, really anything like that. Right. Yeah. I, I just, you know, instead of my own head's busy, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty smart, pretty intelligent. I can sit here and solve the world's problems inside yeah. of my head. But, but, uh, uh, I, 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 so I don't know exactly what the fear is, or at least I, I didn't used to. I'm starting to kind of figure that out. I've gotten to a place where I, I look forward to quiet in peace and uh and that that is all due to you know my 12-step program and 
learning to realize that monsters I thought were locked in closets actually turn out to be kittens. You know, <laughs> when you when you actually get up the get up the confidence to open those and face face them, they're not they're not anywhere close to as intimidating or scary as what what we make them out to be in our minds. Yeah. And uh, and again, that's one of those miracles that that I've been blessed to see through through recovery and, and getting spiritually fit. You remember when you had your first drink? Oh yeah, I'll never forget it. Most people do. Tell me about it. Yeah. All right. Um, had a, had a friend of the girl. Um, I was 13 years old. And, um, was asking her to the dance, and we were we were good friends and. And there was other people around, so I went and I asked her between between periods. This was in junior high, uh, and uh, asked her to the dance, and she shot me down, quick oh. as shit. Just, just, oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I mean, it crushed my crushed my ego, my self esteem, and everything. And so it was that night. I went back to the house. My mom was out, or my parents were out, and uh, I was home watching my little brother and sister. So I poured me a vodka Coke and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So it was mostly vodka and a splash of Coke. Mm. But that, that first, that first drink, it's probably a bit more like the second one, but the first drink that went down, um, but especially the second drink, I just, I remember this feeling coming over me, like it coated my whole body and uh, the tingling in my toes and my fingers and just, the best way I could describe it is just, it was like a shroud of invulnerability. It was, uh, it was confidence. Like I'd never, I'd never known. And I immediately got this feeling of, you know, this, this is what everybody else has always felt like, like this is what I've been missing, you know? Yeah. Um, and of course that social lubricant. So I had a list of girls that I was going to call to ask them to go to the dance. And it was, you know, the, the ones I thought were going to be the easiest. And, and then the ones that were the, <laughs> the, the finest in school, you know, the, the no way in hells. And like I said, after a couple of swallows, um, I, I picked up the phone and I started calling and I started at the bottom. And <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I knew is I had, uh, I had two of the, hottest girls in school fighting over who, who I was taking to the dance. Um, and like from that night on, it was like cologne for me. You know, I, I never left the house without it. I mean, sure I did. I was 13 years old, but if there was a party or there was a dance or there was, you know, I was figuring out a way that I could, um, get that social lubricant and go out there. And, and every time I go to a party and, and I'd have it and, I, I, I was a different person and I, I liked that person better. Yep. Yep. Anytime I, I realized that any, that feeling that I got that anxiousness that I would get whenever I was doing anything outside my comfort level, be it going to dances or any kind of thing where I was going to have to interact with people. Uh, once I got the first one in me, I had found the secret, you know, so now I had the key, right? I didn't have to, the only problem was, was getting it at that age. Cause that's another thing that, 12 to 14 year old range seems to be where most of us begin. Uh, what's that? I, I, and I don't even know how old I was, but I know it was someplace in that. I say 14 when I say talk, I know I was someplace around that in that mm -hmm. ballpark. And I don't know. Do you, you have kids now? I do. How old are they? 
seven and eleven. Yeah, so like a, that's you know, one of the topics of, that I co-hosted there on Clubhouse was it was about sobriety and parenting because I was really hoping to get some tidbits from parents from experience. Um, and one of the best things I heard was from somebody without kids, but their perspective really spoke to me um, from when they were a kid and mm. their parents how they handled the conversation about sobriety with them. Because again, I think that day after that drink that night it was too late for yeah. my parents to try to have a conversation with me about my allergy or my yeah. disease or however they would have chosen to talk to me about it and that conversation never came until my parents were divorced and my dad said listen son your mom's an alcoholic and uh and if you're not careful you probably are too you know and uh like i said it was too late and I don't know that there's any way to save it or prevent it or to help your kids um, avoid it. And I agree. But if there is, or there's a chance, I'm sure as hell, I'm, I'm happy to swallow my pride, my ego, and do do whatever it is that's necessary yeah. to help them understand. And I do yeah. think the allergy of analogy is, I think that's a lot softer blow to a kid's um, yeah. mindset, I, you know, because. I think you, the best defense you have is to arm them with the facts about yourself. And, and I pretty much have told both of mine, they saw me and they're now uh, 15 and 17, but, and being sober six years, they were whatever that makes uh nine and 11 or something, whenever I got sober. So they saw that part of me and they, but they couldn't understand what was going on, but I have sat down since, you know, then, and even back then, and it tried to explain this the best that I could to them at their level, you know, and it's, and told them that at some day you are going to have a chance to try this stuff. There's no doubt at some point you're going to get a chance to try this stuff. And you need to know that you're rolling the dice, that you're spinning the roulette wheel on what it's going to do to you. And the fact that your father's an alcoholic is raising the odds a bunch that you may have the same thing. And that, uh, you know, you'll have to, someday you're going to have to make a decision on whether you're going to try it or not. And just be, just mm -hmm. know that, uh, my, my kids went to Alateen for a while, uh, and so they got some more ammunition doing that. My daughter actually spoke for Alateen, spoke at some Alateen meetings, some convention type ones uh, a couple of times. And they went away on bus trip, Alateen trips with like conventions to, uh, I can't remember where one of them was like in Ohio and another one I think was in Michigan. But uh, they've got the facts and uh, my daughter still is, uh, my son, I, not so much. Uh, I was, I was thinking he'd be the one I'd be dancing with in this department. And of course the game's not over yet, but, uh, but my daughter's already been experimenting with stuff and some pretty, some, I hesitate to say it on the podcast, but I just will. It's some pretty heavy stuff too. So, uh, we're having that talk. Uh, but you know, when you look at those little kids and you think, man, I was that little when I started too, you know, and it just doesn't even almost doesn't make sense because, uh, um, uh, I didn't feel like a little kid when I started, sort of, you know, Right. couldn't have told me. And like you said, I don't, if you look at it, it people come from all walks of life. I mean, I've known people who have severe alcoholic parents who went both ends of the spectrum. I've known some, I know a brother and sister that one wouldn't touch it. And the other one became an alcoholic and their dad was a raging alcoholic. And so, so Dan, I think I think one of the key things here that, uh, as far as with the kids is, it's not just explaining to them 
you know, the allergy or the disease. You know, I don't think um, a big part of it is walking through the steps with them. Yeah. Um, the best that you can. And so when they see you live in the steps and they hear you talking the steps yep. and, you know, I think the bigger difference is if they remember me drinking and I did something to harm them, for instance, like their mom and I being divorced, you know, or um, just the various different ways in which they feel cheated. Yeah. Um, that That's a resentment. Yep. You know, as well as I do what that does um, to an alcoholic, it, it it, it drives. It's one of the reasons why you don't feel like you fit it in. It's one of the things yep. that made it taste so good to me when I drank it, you know, it's um, so, and, and you hit it on the head when you started this whole thing, talking about the 12 step process itself. I, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever been in any rooms of, of AA where um, or NA or CA or any of them where at some point somebody doesn't mention the fact that, man, it would be a greater world out there if everybody had a taste of the 12 steps. Yep. If everybody had the spiritual tools to, to deal with their past, to make peace with their past, um, to <laughs> to stop and take an inventory every night, you know, and write their wrongs right then and there, uh, or to just make it a habit to wake up with a goal of helping people each day. I mean, yeah. that's what the 12 steps is, period. Right. Yep. That's what, a matter yeah. of, am I doing it or is, or my, or is, God, or is God leading me? Yeah, you know, it's my higher power leading me. That's that's the spirituality aspect. Like, right. Yeah. And I think that's just really that that whole uh, since I came into AA, I've heard people say, I wish my uncle had a program. I wish my wife had a program. I wish, you know, they were everybody that's in the rooms is talking about those outside that don't have one. And here in Louisville, Kentucky, we're trying to make that happen. We're offering it up to people. And and I've had the opportunity to sponsor some people through it that don't have the isms. And they have a similar kind of quality of life improvements and get a, you know, what I, I, I might've heard this too, but whatever grade it was, second or third grade, when they were handing out the, the guidebook on how to do life, I must've been absent that day. And now I have a guidebook on how to do this thing that's working really well for me. You know, otherwise I've just felt like I've been guessing my way through everything. Uh, watching what other people do to see, oh, does that look like what I should be doing or not? And uh, yeah, so this 12 step process and I've actually, uh, so in TSSR, we don't have any real rules, you know, and it was predominantly men and there was women coming in wanting a tool. So I've sponsored some women through that work uh, very carefully and tactfully and made sure everything stays above board. I'm uh, as solid as I, as, as I can be and, and keeping it all completely above board. It's been beautiful for me. It's given me a perspective I never would have had uh, had I not done it, having these sponsees that are females and were, and I didn't know if they could open up to me, but they do. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. And then one of my next targets is, is to see if I can't get kids to do the work. I know their pile won't be as deep, you know, but that's a beautiful thing in itself. If they're, you know, they're, they don't have enough life experience to have a big giant fourth step, you know, uh, wouldn't it be beautiful if they never did have to have one? Yeah. And then their 10 steps to regular check of inventory as they move through things, you know, periodically. Yep. Yeah. And I it's do all about my, it's all about cleaning house and cleaning room. You know, everybody knows it's easier to keep a clean house clean than it is to kind of constantly clean a dirty house. Yep. There's a lot of things that are easy to stay that way than they are to get that way. See, you mm-hmm. heard that too. It's easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. Yeah, um, it's, I'm over here wiping my dog's feet every time he comes in for that same thing. I don't yep. feel like cleaning all the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
so uh where'd it come from after this first drink did you said you just started pretty much uh taking every opportunity you could get to uh to consume yeah shortly thereafter my parents got divorced uh, right as i was going into high school um mm-hmm. you know as a, as a young male and coming out of being bullied and um you know just all of those things trauma and having a small small group of friends you know and going into the divorce and you know my my ex and i we just everything blew up for me december 2019 middle of 2019 on so this is all very recent as far as my my rock bottom and spiral and all of this this whole shit show so it's all very fresh um we have been very intent and purposeful about you know, I talk good about their mom to them, the kids. Um, I compliment my daughter all the time. My God, you're so cute. You look just like your mother, you know, like, like we've been very intentional about doing the opposite of what most divorced couples do with their kids. Um, and she had never experienced divorce. Uh, I, on the other hand, I've got four or five in my family, and both my grandparents are divorced and remarried. <laughs> it's dad and my mom both have been divorced and remarried twice. So it's like, I've seen it a lot <clears throat> and, and just the 12 steps. Uh, that's the whole reason. Cause that was, it helped me to figure out how to remove myself from the arguments and the problem so that her and I can communicate like that. It's amazing how quiet it gets when only one person is trying to argue. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're both human. The difference is I had a program telling me, dude, you need to keep your mouth shut your pride got you here your pride will keep it making it worse so shut up take it you earned it stop defending yourself you know what i mean yep Uh, stop letting your buttons be pushed um and so that that was not the case when my parents got divorced um and it was back and forth and me getting put in the middle and and i just escaped you know it was uh, i was stoned every day and drunk every weekend and um, started selling weed when I was 16, 17, something like that. Moved out of my house. Um, um, both, I'd go from one parent's house to the next, and and again, this whole time, like I, my family loved me and I loved them. So yeah. I, I can't, I can't make it out to be like worse than it was. It was just, man, I was, I was hell bent on doing my own thing. Yeah. And uh, another beautiful piece of twelve steps is I learned that I am the problem. Not them. Mm-hmm. They are not the problem. The they. Here's the problem. I was actually blessed. I'm going to fast forward a little bit, Dan. Yeah. Um, I was really blessed with periodically. I mean, 13 years ago, they're 13 years old is 26 years ago for me. And for me to just hit rock bottom for the first time in 2019, it uh, didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, but as I look back while I was sitting in treatment, December, 2019, I'm sitting there going back through my life and my, um, let's see, got my girlfriend pregnant when I was, was it 17, eight, yeah, 17, um, dropped out of school, um, got a job, um, you know, quit drinking, quit smoking weed, quit drugs, quit everything. Cause it was time to be a father, you know? Um, and so for about a four or five month period there, I was sober. Uh, I, well, I did have the occasional drink, you know what I mean? But it wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't an active drinker. Um, I was getting ready to be a father. So I had this break in the action. Well, we lost that, that child, her and mm. I split. Um, and slowly I got back into the swing of things. 
And then uh, let's see, I turned 20. 9-11. So um, I'd, have been, I'd have been about 9-20 and 9-11 uh, happened. Mm. And I was searching for something because at that point I was dealing speed um, and cocaine and like all the, all the hard stuff uh, here locally. And I was, I, I'd get one and go trade it for another. And I just, you know, my, my abilities and knowing people. And I woke up after 9-11 um, I decided that uh, that was that was what I'd been searching for was to join the services which my father and my grandfather both had, mm. and uh, so I went to the recruiter's office on nine twelve. Uh, I told my boss that day I was like, I'm signing up. The best of luck. So I signed up, and then uh, the next morning, but you got you got to keep in mind like I'd been on on speed for months, um, and uh, the next morning I just I woke up. And I uh, looked at the ceiling and, and just kind of laid there and was like, well, I'm done with this. And for somebody like me, an alcoholic like me, that just, that was one of the first miracles right there. Um, I went down and told my roommate, hey man, I'm, I'm done. Here's my stuff. You know, I got to move out. I got to get out of here. Went to my father's house and talked to him and said, dad, I, I need a place to stay. You know, I've got to, I've got to get sober, stay sober. They're not going to take me in basic training and I've got three months. And he said, can I have the basement? And he said, don't bring any of that shit here. I'm like, I won't. And uh, let's see, a week later, I went to go get some of my last stuff and, and I borrowed my dad's truck, which he wouldn't have let me do a week prior than that, you know? And uh, he said, be careful. I'm like, okay. And this place was a, it was a couple blocks from my house. I jump in the truck and uh, and he asked me to fill up the tank. So I filled up the tank, which took maybe five minutes. And then as I'm pulling into that house to go get the rest of my stuff, um, sirens and lights all around. And, and I just kind of pull over and I'm sitting in front of the house right before I would have got pinned in the driveway with my name and my mail, all, all in that house, my stuff. Um, I had like three roommates and they just come pouring in, kick down the door, raid the whole house. And I'm, pinned in around cops and in my dad's truck, just watching it all go down, knowing that if I'd have been five there, minutes I'd be in earlier. Absolutely. They never even reached out. The, the guy that had the house, he took the whole rap for everything. And uh, I came back the next day and got my lizard and uh, <laughs> some other things and got the hell out of there. But, you know, again, like I, it just, I, jail undoubtedly there's just too much I'd, I'd at least been caught up in court to go to basic and who knows what would happen then just trying to defend myself that i moved out and all that and stopped um so anyway i spent three months that, that another period of sobriety yeah. go to basic training nine weeks sobriety then ait four weeks you know i get back you know what i do when i get back from from basic and ait with the two weeks smoke some weed you know and start back to the drinking and then even in AIT, went out, got a carton of smokes, a bunch of cases of beer. Somehow we found strippers, you know, like. <laughs> so then it went downhill until I got my first tour of Iraq. So I go to Iraq. Guess who finds in three months in, in, in the green zone in the back alleys of Baghdad, right next to the Chinese massage parlor, I find the liquor store that none of the officers know about. And so I end up supplying our whole platoon. So now, now I found a way to get drunk in Iraq. Oh. 
And then I come back in another period of sobriety when I go to my second tour, another three or four months of sobriety yeah. until I found the next stash. You know, like I look back and there's just all these times, periods of sobriety. Just like Bill says in the book. it out until it could all just. Yep. Yeah. There were periods of sobriety is what Bill said. And I, I had times too. Usually mine were because I got in trouble. You know, I'd catch a DUI and I'd stop for six months or the wife would be hopped up on me and I'd say, I'm, I'll quit. I promise. And I'd do it for a little while, you know, but, but it never lasted real long. It would be mostly months or until like in the legal things until my tail feathers were put out. You know, once I got the trouble behind me, then it never really dawned on me to ever quit forever though. I never had aim for doing that. Uh, not until, not until the end. You know, I'd said it and that's probably one of the biggest things that keeps people out of sober rooms, Dan, we should talk more about that. You know, it did me the concept like who the hell would I be? I couldn't drink every now and then like a big, like, yeah, I'll drink for it. But man, if a, if a big social gathering or an award ceremony, I got to get up and get an award or give a speech for God's sakes. And I yep. can't have a glass of champagne or something to calm my nerves, you know, that yep. social lubricant, you know? So I just to myself to be like, Oh, I'm done drinking forever. But in the back of my head, I always knew that was bullshit. I was going to quit forever. Um, until you start to learn this program and you start to figure out like the science behind it of what that allergy is you know you, anybody that's seen somebody accidentally get their hands on some sea fish or peanuts or you name it like a deadly allergy okay and then that person says i can never have peanuts you're like i know <laughs> I've, i i get it 100 percent. i'm with you i understand right and that's where the that's where the general public um, and even people that wonder if they have a problem I think they missed that perspective. This is an allergy. And as the Chinese have said for thousands of years, it's very simple. I can go and take a drink, right? But from that moment on, I'm not in control. The drink now takes a drink and eventually the drink then takes me. You right. know? Yep. That's the Chinese proverb. You know, the man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, the drink takes the man. Yeah. Yeah. My kid, you said the peanut allergy brought me my, my, my son actually does have a deadly peanut allergy and I did use that analogy, uh, the same kind of thing with him and my daughter has nut allergies too. Uh, just, you hit that and yeah, you're right. It's, uh, if, if you would, if I would sit over here and watch my son come home with a bag of peanuts, <laughs> and he, what are you doing? Uh, but the flip side of that, like people know that I had the problem with the alcohol and they would still say, Hey man, you want a beer, you know, uh, offer me oh, my army buddies. Yeah. Yeah. It's just natural. Um, it is, uh, so that's, uh, that was something that really hit me hard in treatment, you know, and one of the things in the 12 step is to keep an ear out and an eye out for what it is God has in store for your higher power, how to serve other people. The whole time I'm sitting in treatment and I hear him talking about how to deal with our past and uh, deal with resentments and come to peace with those because, you know, it's, it's the past that haunts us, that drives us to drink. And it's the future that scares us, right? And the anxiety that causes us to drink, you know, the, the, the impending bills that are coming yep. due, you know, I'm just going to drink in this moment and forget about it and I'll get back to work on it in the morning. Well, yep. morning comes and problems are still there. Uh, so, I just saw this just repeated reminder 
um, of my fellow veteran brothers um, and myself who you get diagnosed with PTSD from combat and getting the shit blown out of you and watching your buddies get blown up and the things you do um, that are okay because it's combat, you know, the things that you're supposed to be like, hey, man, that was war. It's okay. Uh, that just, that doesn't usually cut it as far as the human psyche, you know, um, and just general praying to God, like, I'm sorry, like, it, it takes some understanding perspective of where your higher power is and where forgiveness comes from and grace and all these things uh, to really get right with stuff. And most importantly, though, this is where the 12 steps gets it right is like, I can admit something to me. I can write something down on paper to me. I can journal. I can write freaking books about it. And I've, I've read books from authors that clearly are trying to deal with it in the form of putting words on paper, but they're still struggling with it. And you can hear it in their words. And, and then, you know, admitting things to God, that's great and fine too. But, but like you were saying, if you got to bring in another human being and all the deepest, darkest things, and that was tough for me, but oh my God, was that liberating to open yeah. that door and let that kitten out. And then I just wanted more. <laughs> I was like, I, I want to get more of this off my chest because there's a lot. Uh, but I looked back and uh, we started a nonprofit to try to save veterans from from suicide because awesome. we didn't lose a single guy from my platoon while we were in combat. Um, and that miracle after, like, there was no doubt the, the the motto in our platoon was there ain't no such thing as luck. And that wasn't us saying we're good. It's because we just seen God's work constant on the road in Northern Iraq. All the eyes were on the surge down South. You know, why the surge down South worked because it sent all them bad mamma jammas up our way. And we had no support. They're just blowing the shit out four or five IEDs a night on our unarmored convoys. It was nuts. So um, uh, carrying legs to helicopters and just, it, it was, it was a lot. And, but we didn't lose anybody. Right. Um, and then we get home in 07 and within about five years, I'd lost six guys to suicide. Um, and uh, I call it that it was suicidal lifestyle. Like one of them was an overdose on uh, some, some BA meds. Another one was, from an enlarged heart. Well, the dude would call me at 4.30 in the morning and say, what's up, Mary Kate? My name's Ashley, you know, and this was my platoon sergeant. And uh, I'd, I'd answer his call and talk to him, but he was on a fifth of whiskey, you know, yeah. every night. And uh, I mean, that's what killed him. So I looked back and ain't one of those guys wasn't actually dealing with underlying ism, alcoholism or something. Yep. Um, and then I get to looking at all the other people and all the other military um, situations where they're committing suicide and it's, it's there. And what, what I think the VA did that's, that's terrible is somehow when we're diagnosing people with PTSD, military or not, um, <clears throat> we're actually diagnosing them with similar to something like a crutch when the underlying issue, the reason that generally they're seeking out help isn't because of the nightmares, isn't because of the haunting or the other things that, that they call as being symptoms of PTSD. The reality is their life is falling apart because their dependency on some form of chemical, some form of mind altering substance, maybe the damn meds that the VA was pumping us full of, you know, whatever it was, our dependency on something to treat at the core what the 12 steps treats. Does that make sense? Amen, man. 
makes you're, all these vets my song. and all these people completely dependent on what drugs yep you know which if there's one thing i've learned is all the alcohol in the world ain't gonna solve my damn problem it's gonna kill me and yep. then what i learned with the va pumping me full of stuff for ptsd same thing i'm dependent on pills every morning instead of my my higher power yep. and so now i'm 100 percent off of anything va prescribed or whatever else and and <clears throat> alcohol and and using the 12 steps and I mean, I, I'm struggling, but, um, in business and other things, like I said, still dealing with the fallout of my actions from a year ago, but as far as spiritually, and as far as on a, on a personal level, like I'm, I'm better than I've been in my life. And that's, that seems nuts for me to be able to say that. Yeah. But, um, I agree, man. Anyway, I mean, it's, so, uh, I think, you know, I, I, it's, people hear it as a big strong word but it's trauma and it's the things we go through in the way that and my listeners will hear me say this a million times but it's like walking through i'll just say we walking through life with a garbage can on my back well, with backpack straps i got a rucksack in my on my back that i'm walking through life with and everything experience i have i'm putting it in that backpack and i can't help it right i mean every experience you have you put in a backpack and and the fact of the matter is things like uh but being having your parents divorce is trauma really you don't know what to do with that when you're a kid and getting bullied is trauma and getting uh you know who knows you know whether if you were you know you can run the gamut for what happens you know the bullying uh kids get molested uh you lose family members heck you could lose a pet and that's trauma traumatic uh, all this stuff and you put it in this backpack. Now you're also having some good experiences, hopefully, and you're putting them in there too. But then we have this dynamic of this uh, negative bias, which means in, an ounce of negativity weighs more than a pound of positivity. It's a old bad apple in the bucket kind of thing. So you've got that, no matter how much good is in that backpack with those balls of bad in there, uh, it, it sours it. And that's what is at the forefront of our mind. And, and, somehow or another and that's why the 12 steps gave me some concrete tools to get in front of my sponsor and dump all that on the floor and process all of it you know and put the bad stuff up on the shelf that is the past and i don't you know it's still there but it's the past now it's doesn't have to be uh like you said a minute ago or, or intimated anyway that you know the past is blocking me from moving forward uh, because every time I take a step forward, I bump my head into the past. And then this process allowed me to put all that stuff back on the shelf where it belongs on in the past, polish up the good stuff, throw it back in my can. And my bottom really is when my can started tipping over, you know, now I get to clean it all up. And now I'm back down to like a 25% can, you know, and I got room in my pack to move through life again with some reasonable amount of efficiency and, uh, and uh, what I found to be a really successful way. And I do not know another process anywhere that gets you, that allows you to process this stuff in the way that the 12 steps does in the, in the speed you can actually do it in. Uh, you know, you could probably do the same thing with a really good counselor, but you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of years unpacking that stuff with a counselor. 12 steps allows you to unpack this stuff, you know, in months. And some people even do it faster than that. The way we go through it, you know, you're looking at a four or five, six month maybe, but I'd always shoot for like four month process. And you see a, you see a human being uh, completely shift. I mean, their whole being changes. One that gives you the tools to maintain for the rest of your life. Yep. And then you got something to move forward with. step every night, you know, yep. hey, 
who did I piss off today? <laughs> yeah. Or, or who did I, who did I, um, who was I short with or who could I have helped and I, and I elected to go the lazy route or let somebody else step in, you know, like, yeah, part of it's getting your house clean and the other one's keeping it that way. And, yep. and yep. it's all in there. Cause I can't um, move forward I, with all that on my back. I, I don't have no way to move forward in any kind of effective manner. You, uh, I, I was smiling and laughing because your analogy ties in perfectly to before I, before I knew the 12 steps, uh, a lot of people would ask me again, I'm, I've, I've always been vocal about my time overseas and my service and combat. And, uh, and you say the word again, also, the adjective you use, you always been what about it? I, I've said, always been open, open. Okay. I, it kind of bleeped and I didn't catch the word. You, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I've always been over vocal. I'm sorry, I think like I said, oh. very vocal and open about it, uh, which is rare for for somebody with PTSD and trauma and stuff. Yep. But but again, it's like I, I'm the kind of guy I want to talk about it um, as far if if it can help perspective. So the motive for me talking about my experiences is more so because my friends, civilian friends that I've made um, through being a professional in this town, they they ask out of genuine curiosity, like. Um, how can we help veterans? How can we help people that have been in your situation or somebody struggling and so forth? Uh, and, and so I've, I've always been open to this is what, this is what it's like for them to help civilians gain perspective so that instead of just being like, wow, that must suck for him, you know, feel more confident to talk to him. You know, that's, that's, that's the isolation factor for vets is that um, not only does it not feel like anyone can relate, but nobody tries to relate because yeah. they just like, I don't know anything about that and that must suck. And I feel for you and thank you for your service and all that. But um, it, it's in, too intimidating for, for most civilians to, to go up and talk to somebody. Uh, uh, and from my I perspective, I don't want to me. open up a can of worms that, I, that maybe you don't want opened up, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and I do feel unqualified to ask uh, about it. I'm a lot better today, but I almost feel unqualified to even ask you how you're doing. Cause I feel like I'm so far out of the realm, you know? Uh, sure. But, but as you know, in your own struggle, sometimes you just need somebody to listen. Yep. It's not about what you have to say to them. It's about allowing somebody the opportunity to say something they needed to say. Yep. And that's what I get out of those rooms. I walk in there. I don't know what I'm going to say when I walk in there. Some days I sit in, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything today. Well, that never happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and because uh, there's always something to get off or there's always something to get off that you think might help somebody that you just heard is really struggling. And so the one what I would share for people, they're like, so why do you think, you know, what's going on with vets? And I was like, let me give you an analogy as to what it's like to be a combat veteran coming back into the civilian world that's complaining about uh, the, the, the food's too cold when it shows up at the table or uh, we're going to, you know, or you come home to a world that is on fire just the left and the right just completely at each other's throats and you're like i went to go fight for this so you feel you feel isolated you you leave a brotherhood that you're over there with right to come back to a society that hates each other i don't want none of this i want to go back over there shit blow me up just put me with people that i love you know and love me because I can't find that here. That's what it feels like, you know? Um, And then, but the analogy that I would use is basically we come home literally with duffel bags 
All everything we own is in duffel bags. And we come home to a civilian world in an apartment or whatever, and we just turn everything upside down and just dump it right in the middle of the floor. That's what training we have as far as dealing with the crap we just saw and went through, you know, and being in this high alert status and and you come back to a civilian world, you get a few weeks break and now you're supposed to go get a job, go back to your job. I was National Guard. I spent more time in the desert than I did back here, but they still call you nasty girls and weekend warriors, right? We come back, dump all our bags out and... I don't know if you've ever lived in a house where you come home from a long day at work and there's just a mountain of crap everywhere and your whole place is in disarray. That's our life. We've had no assistance in trying to pick these things up and put them where they belong, you know, and the 12 steps tells me that I will, I will not, you know, wish to shut the door on my past, but until you deal with it, you sure as hell don't want to open the door and just walk around it every day. Yeah. And so it's a mess. You're constantly tripping. You're constantly falling. You're pissed off. You, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's your life. So what we figured out was um, after losing my sixth buddy, uh, another one of mine, I think it was when ISIS, yeah, it was when uh, ISIS was taking Missoula, which was our, that was our area. You know, we owned that place. We kept the insurgents at bay and uh, it was on the news and ISIS was taking Missoula and we could see some of the mosques that were our checkpoints. And they were burning and, you know, and like they were destroying the zoo. And, and I got a call the next day uh, from a couple of mutual buddies that got figured out that one of my buddies was in Larned, Kansas. And, uh, and through calling the police department and they wouldn't tell me what was going on. I finally was just like, listen, lady, is he in a standoff right now? And she goes, yes. I was like, tell the chief of police don't do anything, stand there. It was like an hour and 15 minute drive. I, I made it in 45. Yeah. I was like, I'm on my way. So I got there, um, got him talked down. They put him in the hospital. Wow. I ended up talking to the police officer. I'm like, you're going to turn him over to me. You're going to give his guns to me. All of the, And you're going to drop the charges. And then I'm going to make sure that he's okay. And the police officer's like, I'm going to do this. Why exactly? I go, you drove up in his yard in a town this size. You know he's a combat veteran with PTSD, no priors. And you pulled up in his yard and drew your guns on him because somebody said they saw he had a gun. He was going shooting. I go, I wouldn't want that publicity. So they ended up doing it. But that mm -hmm. night we, we talked about our first reunion. And the whole goal was like, all right, we need something to look forward to every year. Um, and uh, after that night, he tried to stay sober. And it was only in this last year that I figured out um, that, that he was in a program. I remembered some things that he had said, and, uh, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about it then. So I myself, when he'd come to the reunion, he'd be like, but you're having a drink with us, right? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. Man, if I knew now what I knew wow. then, you know. Yeah. Um, so since... This will be the seventh annual, and we haven't lost a single guy since uh, we started that first reunion, except for him. Is that what you just uh, came back he, from? Well, one of them. So from that, a lot of the guys have started their own. There's a Veterans Day, a Fourth of July one, a Memorial Day one. This is just the the guys camp, guys winter camp. 
that we go to. Um, and what we realized is, again, when I'm going through treatment, Dan, it's so funny because like, that's what these reunions are. You know, I just went to treatment last, a year ago, um, but I've been doing these for like seven years, the community. Yep. Knowing, knowing they're there, they're depending on us um, or they're depending on me. And that when I go, like, or if I was to do something that all of them, it's going to, it's going to affect all of, you know, that, that community. And the saying is one more sunrise, which I lost my brother whose birthday is tomorrow to suicide mm-hmm. via alcoholism. Um, Your true brother. He, yeah. He was 23 and Damn. Uh, he had the liver of a 60 year old alcoholic and I, I had no idea. Um, but so yeah, he hung himself and my dad found him that was Damn. Him, uh, three years ago. So hmm. we, uh, that was, again, at the time I didn't realize yeah you don't know alcohol is an aspect of it yeah yeah looking back around a campfire every time we get together every time we hear one of the other guys that was deployed with us tell the same story from a different perspective all we're doing is collectively around a fire is we're picking up this common event that scarred us all blowing it off putting it together getting the other pieces together and we're picking up this nasty room one thing at a time Yep. putting it on the shelf right where it goes. We're not getting rid of it. We're not hiding it. We're not throwing it in a closet. We're not burning it. We're just simply putting it where the hell it goes, you know? And when we want to go back and visit that memory, you know, it's right there. We can talk about it, Yep. but I'm not stumbling over at yep. random points and it's just coming into my mind. You know what I mean? Yep. And you know, in a bit, Sounds like you know a, exactly what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, um, yeah. You were clicking on both uh, on the same cylinders. The, uh, Big book talks about those dark past being our greatest asset at times, you know, because we got to get them back out. And that's a tool for me, the stuff that I did that I'm not proud of and wish I could, you know, sort of wish I could forget, uh, you know, I, when I'm working with a new guy, I get that stuff back out and show it to him that, cause that, that connection, yeah. that relation, right, it's, that, right, it's right here. Yep. Yep. That's, uh, you know, you were, you, so I'm in part of a really tight knit men's group here in Louisville and it's what saved my life. And it, and you know, the, what you're talking about there, like I have a men's retreat down at a place I have out in the country every year. And it's gotten to where like the next year will be the eighth one. And, uh, and it's gotten to be where it's been like, people are looking forward, like they're asking me now. And it's usually in May, what weekend is it? What, what weekend's it going to be? And, uh, and, and it just, you said, uh, building that community and and i look at we look at each other almost in a similar kind of thing of like battle buddies you know we've been through a similar war it's not the same one you're talking about although one of my buddies is and he talks about uh he's actually sponsee of mine talks about having that tight-knit brotherhood there and coming back here and the only place he could really feel that was with uh with the people who were doping and drinking you know he felt like he was part of that group you know and he couldn't find anything like it and now he says you know our group that we have now has filled that void of his need for that deep uh deep connection and and a real you know brotherhood is not even a strong enough term uh it we are just so there's nothing we don't know about each other and we communicate through these kind of uh um, through a couple of different things, chat and a video chat thing. And we talk every single day. My phone's sitting over buzzing now because they must be having a conversation uh, and having that close net community. There's some guy, I um, can't remember what his name is, but he said uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. You've heard that. 
Uh, and that's what we built is this connection. And I did go in a rabbit hole not long ago. Cause when I was a kid, I liked to read these stories about like the Navy SEALs and stuff. And, uh, I never, my brother went in the army, but I, but I, I, I never, uh, I, I never joined. And, uh, but that always the, uh, the platoon, the team aspect that, that tighten it, depending on one another, uh, always, uh, has been attractive to me. And I've been in like a, there's apparently there's some, there, there's a whole bunch of that going on on YouTube right now. And I can listen to those stories, you know, and I go in a rabbit hole and I'm hearing this uh, team aspect specifically around the seals. Cause that's where I've just been falling into of, uh, of the connection that they had with one another. And I, and I, it's a parallel to the connection I have with the men and that, that are around me today. If I need some help, I can throw a line out right now and somebody will be here. Same thing goes for them. You know, something could happen and I'd have to say, hey, so-and-so needs some help and we got to go and building that. And I just love hearing you talk about the, the reunions and the, the, the get togethers you're having. Uh, you know, we call them retreats. Uh, and one of the reasons I like I'm retreating from all the bullshit. <laughs> I'm going to retreat from all that and go into where it's safe because right here with these guys, it's safe to speak about anything that's on my mind. It's safe to, you know, there's, there's no, there's nothing that is not safe to talk about there. And, and I need that place in my life. I need those dudes and I have to stay sober today so that they, you know, I heard somebody say the other day, you know, that I'm not shooting my rifle to stay alive. I'm shooting my rifle. So my buddies stay alive and they're doing the same for me. And I, that parallel of working a recovery program and the same thing, you know, um, I'm not, uh, you know, this might be a stretch being the first time I vocalized it after, cause I'm something's wheeling around in my head. Uh, to some extent, I'm not staying sober for me. I'm staying sober. So my buddies stay sober and they're staying sober so that I will. Well, I think, I think what you're, what you're itching at right there is like when you go into the rooms and you share, you know, um, like my sponsor said, you need to go into every meeting with the, with the, with the motive to help somebody. Um, and what you say. And he says, so speak loud. He goes, first and foremost, speak loud. So the people in the back can hear you because yeah. you don't know who needs to hear it. Yep. And when you're new to the halls of AA and you feel like, well, I ain't got nothing that's going to help nobody. You might be the one sharing that that 35 years sober person over there that's got 35 years of sobriety needs to hear you young bucks straight up out the streets, you know, still licking your wounds are going to share something that's going to shoot him right back to the day that he, you know, that he got sober and keep him sober. Yep. Call it keeping it green. I don't go into those halls with the intention to share, to get shit off my chest. I mean, you can, um, sometimes that's I've there needed to, <laughs> yeah, but, but your the motive again, generally should be aimed towards, I'm going to share in a way that I hope is able to help somebody here. Yep. That's but what we call experience, know, strength and hope. The whole yep. concept behind my that. experience is my nasty stories <laughs> yep. that I got to pull off the shelf, you know, and uh, yeah. And, and the strength to overcome it. And that provides the hope. So, yeah. Uh, so just to kind of get back to your story just a little bit. So, cause uh, you came, when did you come back from Iraq? Um, so I had a, I had two tours and I had about a year stint in between them where I went to college or, um, in Kansas city, Kansas. Um, 
the second tour I got back about the middle of 07. Were you married then? I was engaged. Engaged. So is, did you do one of them engagements yeah, and go off to war? Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, we were high school sweethearts, so oh, okay. we, we knew each other prior. Yeah. So and uh, I remember some of my friends doing the thing where they were getting engaged to their gals right before they went off to war. And uh, it always struck me a little funny uh, that 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 the timing of that stuff. I think there's a little bit of a well. I don't. I, I should not say, but I do know a handful of my friends that did that. I mean, I don't know that there's not some kind of a security fact from you're going to go over to combat and you want you just you don't want to worry about whether or not your girl's walking around without a ring on her finger. Yeah. While you're deployed overseas. Yeah. My first tour actually was married before I got called up um, and uh, less than a month, I think. And then I got the call and it turns out the whole time I was deployed, um, I was the only one married, if you know what I'm saying. And so I got that aspect as well. And that was some things that I completely just forgot about an entire about year of my life. I mean, just like had to dig in there through therapy and then through the program and stuff to even remember it. Uh, despite knowing now that like she did me a favor, yeah. you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, yeah. But. I, uh, so did you come home and then get married? Is that, so you were engaged, you come home, got married. Uh, I, I just Everything can't. was happy. We were the token, we were the token power couples, what everybody would call us. Um, I started and ran a successful real estate business here. It was the top agent in, in our, in our area. Um, she ran the best salon in our area. Like just a real power couple, really focused on business and, yeah, so you came out of the and, army uh, and went into real estate time, pretty quickly. That ego and that pride, to be honest with you, from yeah. success is what ultimately got to the point where uh, my ego and pride about ruined the ruined the marriage. And she kind of had her own struggles with with alcohol, but that this is uh, this is my story, and I yeah. screwed up. And yeah. it's all all points to ego and pride, and then it all started going downhill from there. So you jumped right out, you went into real estate right after the military and you still do it today. Construction. So I too am a carpenter. Are you? And uh, yeah, that was, I did about everything but the plumbing and roofing in the house, uh, but, but woodworking and crown molding and trim work and stuff was always my favorite because it was the hardest. Yeah. I've always, always gone after the hard thing. Yeah. Uh, crown tomorrow. Yeah, getting that figured out, boy, I went through a lot of scraps before I got before I got that trick figured out. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah, so then I, uh, my father-in-law actually um, encouraged me to go towards real estate because, man, I would get so great at something and then I'd get burned out. Yeah. So, I, you know, my first job, I was 14 doing flat work concrete and uh, and I, I did a lot of that on and off because the money's good and I love hard work, you know, it's that's about the hardest work I ever found to be honest. Yeah. Concrete. Um, and so I started my own, uh, my own remodeling business, uh, kitchens, bathrooms, tile decks, love doing exterior decks, uh, double, triple tier decks and stuff all by myself. Never could quite trust somebody to, to, you know, for the quality of work that I wanted it to be. And, um, 
And I just, it came to realize that I was never going to be able to charge enough per hour for the time I spent on my projects to provide the, the life I wanted for my family. So I got into real estate and, uh, and yeah, the paychecks, you know, and then the so on. But most importantly to me, it was something different every day. Mm. And then my, my urge, my drive to help solve other people's problems but not my own, but help other people solve their problems. Right. Um, it was just, people were calling me to pay me to help them solve their problems on every single day. And it was always something new. There was no no getting bored. Uh, yeah, it really, I think there's a reason why there's a huge percentage of alcoholics in in real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know a great deal of them around here. Matter of fact, one of them is my guest coming Sunday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what it is, two man. realtors in a row. Uh, that's what, but also I look at, uh, and I, and I know a lot of painters and mm-hmm. I know a lot of, uh, HVAC guys. And, you know, if you go down through the trades, I got a handful of, uh, of, uh, it seems like a bunch of everything. Um, a lot of people I know that are in the service industry from food. Go ahead. Look at the from the painting aspect. Um, that's somebody that generally, especially if you're a one man show or something, that's you and your voice in your head all day. All day. Somebody's house, remodeling their bathroom, you know. And and so uh, I would never drink on the job, but man, I had the radio up. I always had something distracting me, um, you know, um, so that I wasn't just in a house with nothing but my own thoughts. I'd have yeah. music playing, the radio going, something. And and I think that's that that's part of it is um, finding a place where you're where you're at peace with with hearing your own just your own your yeah. own thoughts in your own head. I still listen to stuff almost all the time while I'm working, but most of the time it's an audio book or a, and usually not not uh, some kind of excuse me nonfiction. I pump a recovery talking. Uh, what I'm learning around here in my ears more than anything else. I did like a hundred books last year. Uh, I saw you look at your watch. What is your hard stop? When do you want to be done? Oh, I don't care. You had just said I was checking got my kid. I heard a kid a little bit ago, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, Either that or my dog. No, the dog is dead on the floor over there. Yeah. You'd think he was. Uh, so you, what, what actually did, what was, what happened that made you hit the wall? That was the bottom in 19 December. Um, it was, I go to treatment or I'm going to die. Um, I, I kind of, I was so, um, just, just in a cocaine days that, um, I, I was doing it like, well, I was doing cocaine like an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, staying up seven, eight days in a row, you know, um, that's, that's not what that's intended for. Um, and, uh, and I just got into a place where I knew I was going to die, I think. So, um, it wasn't an I, event. You just knew that you had to stop or it was, it was going to stop you permanently. So I somehow I, I was in counseling and I was seeing my counselor throughout this and I had her convinced I was bipolar and they were putting, sending me in to see if I had a TBI injury from when I was deployed. And anyway, I was going in for an MRI. And, uh, and when I went into the hospital, 
to, to get my blood work done before they did the actual test. Um, I knew they were going to be drawing blood. I knew they were going to be drawing urine. They were going to be doing all the, the battery of tests that they do before they check someone for a legitimate like injury, you know, and, and, uh, walking in there, like my voice, the whole time's like, you know, you can't, you can't do this. They're going to, they're going to find out they're going to find. And, but I, my, my legs kept walking like almost faster. And when I got there and they handed me the thing and they told me to go pee in the cup the whole way, I had voice in my head. I'd walk by somebody, and be like, they look like they could use 20 bucks, you know, duh, 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 like, like have somebody else pee in the cup. And this is, I'm not in trouble. I'm not going to jail. Like this is, and these voices and I'm in there, nope, being and, and, uh, and I'm, but I'm fighting it the whole time. Like my mind is saying one thing, my legs are doing the other. And I get back and I hand them the cup and, and, uh, <clears throat> and right up until they went through the, the doors to the back area, like I gave her the cup and, and I'm thinking I could get that back and grab that paper. They'll never know it was me. And, but, but, you know, until they got on the back and when they did, I like, I just sat down in one of the waiting chairs and just like just this huge weight and relief came over me. Cause I knew I was busted mm. and I went home and I went to sleep. And then, uh, <clears throat> for like two hours, I got up and did the rest of it. <clears throat> and then I went in for my, for my MRI and, and got my MRI came back and I was like, I'm going to sleep to my wife who still didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, she just had never really dealt with any of that stuff. She was a really good girl growing up, never messed with it. And, and uh, I go to sleep, I wake up two hours later to her and my mom shaking me like cocaine. Are you kidding me? Like, cause the results came back and uh, they, they had like four people over there to have a intervention, intervention. with me, you know? Yep. And, uh, cause they thought I was going to be fighting them on it and all this stuff. And, and they're like, Hey, this is, this is where our, my counselor says the best place is to go. And I was like, okay. Just when are we going? You know, wait, get me there now. But he, then they said when they ran the test, they're like they could not believe just how they, they didn't know I was still kicking, basically. Yeah. Uh, so was it a VA that, thing? No, it wasn't. No, just, I avoid them like the plague. <laughs> so you avoid them like the plague. Local. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am a little bit surprised uh, that they actually did a drug screen at some level. Uh, I don't know why. Um, glad they did, but uh, you know, sometimes you go in for things, you know, and they're just checking what they need to check, and they're not really going outside the bounds of uh, of of looking for other things. And you had said that earlier about like having a psycho, trying almost getting a psych diagnosis if something was wrong with you psychologically. And uh, you know, when yeah. we're when we're using, no matter what chemical it is, it's alcohol or any kind of dope or whatever, we look like. You know, I mean, we act like we're <laughs> have some kind of psychiatric problem. Uh, I, I know. So at the same time, you're talking about talking to all these counselors and meeting with them and everything, but you're never telling them the truth, right? Right. So they don't know. They just think something's wrong with you. If you walk in there and say, I'm doing a gram of cocaine a day uh, or whatever, uh, they might have said, well, let's work on that first. <laughs> and then we'll see if the other problems are still there, you know? Uh, yeah. Once, uh, because we will look, and I've heard another speaker say this. I listen to a lot of AA speakers. You ever do that? Listen to speaker yes. tapes. 
Uh, and he said, you know, one day I look like I'm, you know, one day I'm bipolar and another day I'm schizophrenic and another day I'm manic depressive and, you know, and, and they can't figure, they can't get me nailed down because I'm a, like got a different disorder every day I go in there. One common denominator though. Me. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, uh, the same speaker says he can, he bets a dime to dollar that if you would deal with these issues through the 12 steps, you'll find out that that none of those psychiatric disorders actually existed. Yeah. It certainly didn't for me. I'm, I'm not going to a counselor anymore. I've got my sponsor in my 12 steps. Yeah, me too. I'm a lot better than when I, than I, when I first went going before the shit started really getting out of control. Yeah. Do you do a, like a 30 I mean, day thing? I, I've been out of control for a couple of decades, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Before things really started spiraling. Yeah. Did you... and, and that really, the spiral really started when I lost my brother. Um, mm. suicide and then the other army uh, suicides that i had just compiled you know and then i started seeing that within me well i love that you're putting oh, I, service into yeah. it that that that's that's just really cool it touches me that you're uh taking what you have learned you know and actually going out and really making uh a difference out there with uh as an example of of what, what you've experienced that's uh i mean that's ultimately the 12 step here, you know, is it doesn't make it, you know, we, we talk about it as far as going out and helping people with their alcoholism, but I think going out and helping people period is what it's about. And, and that life of services is a, a huge piece of my recovery. I mean, like most of it. Well, today. me just telling the truth, Dan keeps me from having to go to another funeral. I mean, that's, uh, that's more than enough reason for me. Yeah. Uh, whole reason I do this podcast, I do it as a service. I don't make money off of doing this. Uh, yep. I'm, uh, I'm doing it to carry this message. And for whatever reason, uh, I felt, you know, led to do it and God keeps supporting it, keeps on giving me gas. I keep on putting out content every week and, uh, coming up on 30,000 downloads here in a minute. So, uh, somebody's listening to it and, uh, that's, uh, Really Maybe. cool. Did you do a long-term recovery? Did you go to like a 30, 60, 90 day thing or did you? Yeah, it was a, it was a Valley Hope 30 day program here in Kansas. And, uh, and I, I mean, it was great. And the, and the, the team that we were with, and like I said, I was, I was sitting in there like going through with my relating it to, to my, my time in service and my other guys and, and the counselors were open and talking about that as well. They didn't see that as a distraction from my recovery to bring in yeah. my PTSD. In, in that portion did you have um, any hang-ups on the area of like surrender and that kind of thing i hear like military you know you've been banged in your head that you're not powerless and and there is no surrender uh were those hurdles for you yeah so i'm going to turn off my screen because i'm having troubles we're cutting there so i'm going to just I cut my video feed for you, Dan. So hopefully that's no problem. Audio. i understand we do that in zoom meetings too when people are having trouble i'll just cut mine too there and, we go uh, so, so yes, um, a little bit on my second tour I did. Um, but that was the interesting thing for me, Dan, was that during my second tour, I got moved up from the, the lead gunner in the front gun truck, which was a big responsibility to find IEDs. You know, I felt like I was in control. Well, you know, how alcoholics like to control everything. So that's where I wanted to be, the very front of the convoy and the gunning spot so I could spot the IEDs before it hit my convoy. Um, and then they 
moved me to the assistant convoy commander. So now I was second in control for um, 90 souls. And I tell you what, uh, it was quiet the first few months of this tour uh, to the point where one of my good buddies goes, uh, hey, uh, I just wish something would happen, man. This is, this is bullshit. Oh my God. That night was our first IED. And then, uh, and it only got more colorful from there. So, mm. so, but when it really started getting nasty, um, I found myself in tears because I just knew I was like, at this rate, I'm going to, I'm going to lose them all. You know, like we just, we couldn't, we couldn't keep up. We were getting blown up so much and, uh, see a miracle after an America, you just know, you know, the time is coming. Like one of these trucks is going to get hit and four guys are going to be gone. Um, and they were getting better at where they were placing them. And our armor was crap. We had no supplies. Like it was just, it was a very, very grim outlook. And, uh, I actually, I just, I fell down on my knees at one point in my second tour and surrendered. Um, and found the strength that I just, I didn't even know existed. And so every single night when we left that gate, um, I would turn off my radio, my crew and my truck, my driver and my gunner, they both knew not to bug me for about the first 15 minutes. Cause when we rolled out that gate, <clears throat> I'd just pray for about 10 or 15 minutes. Cause that's like the safety area. And, uh, you know, God give your angel charge over us, you know, guide our eyes, guide our minds, guide our words, guide our, you know, I just go through all the things and all the trucks and all the guys on the convoy and, and I'd visualize success and visualize fast reactions and visualize the enemy. Like, and I just felt by giving that over, I was the strongest I'd ever felt in my life. And I just, hey, God, because like, I know how busy God is, give your angels charge. Like, I'm just asking for a few angels here, you know? Yeah. So when I got into treatment, I actually had a, a morning where I woke up and um, and I was outside and I don't know, the sun hit me and no, to short, short answer, not for me, but I see it. I see it. In my guys all the time. Yeah. Well, um, that's, that, that's I, talk about, I talk about miracles. Uh, and, and my main thing is, is I got this miracle list of these things that have happened to me since I've been in recovery that I know would not have happened mm-hmm. had, had it not been for that. But fact of the matter is I get clearer on my future my past also gets clearer and I see that like, uh, and just bear with me on this. Uh, I don't mean to be putting words in your mouth, uh, but you, you were given a gift there to like uh, that surrender or, uh, during that period of your life that would come in handy again when it came time to fight this battle, you know, mm-hmm. and to me, that's, uh, I, I, th- I really am a purpose kind of guy. And, uh, I put those things together, uh, and, and I, and I don't overlook that. Uh, that's really interesting to me that you were uh, handed the gift of surrender on the actual battlefield and saw the results of that action. Uh, whether if you understood it or not, didn't make any difference. Uh, but you put that to play out there and it's a similar kind of surrender that you would need again later on in, in this battle. Dan, like the most important part about that is when I got back in 07, you know, I was, I was still in this position where I would, I would, I would speak to the power of God, like, you know, all the time with people like, you know, I, I kind of felt sorry for people who had to go on faith alone because man, I saw it, you know, Yeah. but the best part of this is, this is where the 12 step program, oh man, I can, 
that ego and that pride will grow on you. And it went from a place where I knew damn good and well why I was alive and my guys were alive to the place where, you know, I was given these things and given success and he granted me, you know, a lot of success, um, business and financially and family. You know, I, I had the dream family for a decade and, and rather than just, it's so simple to just give credit where it's due me and my ego and my pride, you know, I started that holier than thou stuff started coming in and I started, mm. you know, getting, getting that, getting on that high horse and, and uh, biblically um, there's stories of Kings, you know, being reduced to eating in fields and sleeping in the open and, and, uh, and being completely dethroned. And then, you know, God promises that, Hey, if you, if you surrender and follow me, all that's yours will be given back to you. There's, there's that, that's sobriety. You have to, you have to kill your ego. Um, and, and understand that, that we're, we're only capable of doing things through through a higher power because if, if it's just left to me and I'm the one running the show, boy, I'll run anything in the ground. And it's so counterintuitive because I am. I'm, I'm smart. I'm strategic. You know, I can manipulate with the best of them, but boy, I will manipulate things right into the ditch. Yep. Uh, it took me 10 years. And and uh, it was coming off of that high horse, like you're saying, of, of finding surrender and, and, and leading, uh, and leading a very spiritual life, and and I just oh, ten years later, I, I don't even know that I had any any room for God whatsoever in my life. Yeah, that is. Uh... Despite all the miracles, and that's the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What have you done for me lately? <laughs> right. Yep. I can certainly uh I can certainly parallel that. Uh uh it can happen in recovery too, where you begin to think you know something about this, you know, and well that's uh, what happened to me in December. Yeah. Like I it's the old I got this, you know. I'm good, I got this. Mm-hmm. And uh about time I say that, uh it's it's probably about the time I'll lose my current sobriety date. Uh, yeah. In January, I, as a matter of fact, tomorrow night, it'll be, uh, we celebrate our birthdays on, uh, our sobriety birthdays on the last Tuesday of the month. And uh, I'll be celebrating six tomorrow night. And uh, I was talking to somebody else the other day and uh, man, that first year was rough and seemed like it lasted forever. And, you know, and this whole, uh, experience over the last six years, it really feels like a blink of the eye. Now, uh, it feels like just a minute ago that I was new and, uh, mm-hmm. but it seems so long ago since I've taken a drink or a drug at the same time and just a odd, uh, dichotomy of the, how time moves. Um, but I know I'm not, you know, when, when, when it says we are not cured and, and I know this is something that, uh, that I keep on working on. And we used to say, or you used to tell me, you know, whenever we were, I was bouncing in and out, I had a four year stint of bouncing in and out of recovery rooms and not, I, I put together a year early on and then it was just bumpy from there on out. Uh, and they said, if you keep on doing what you're doing and you're going to keep on getting what you're getting. And I turned that around in recovery. And if I, what I'm doing in my recovery life today, uh, 
sponsoring people, making sure I'm making meetings. When Zoom came along, I said, you know, not only am I going to uh, attend the meetings, I'm, I will host them, you know, and continue to do things that, that puts me in a position to uh, participate in my recovery regularly because uh, I found out what the opposite does for Dan. Um, my first relapse after that year was uh, definitely one of those things where I let the life AA give me getting away on my AA life. And I started getting busy doing stuff because I could now and uh, slowly but surely quit doing all the things that the recipe for relapse uh, has in it and stop talking to your sponsor, stop, start, uh, stop going to meetings, you know, all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, stop praying, stop meditating. Um, and before long, I realized I wasn't doing anything for my recovery. I thought, well, I guess I didn't really need any of that stuff. And a little bit later, ding dong, a drink looked good one night. And, uh, and I didn't, some people talk about going from zero to 60. That's not me. I, 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 I ease into it. You know, I actually did have one drink that night and patted myself on the back, said, see, you can do that. Uh, and then a couple more nights later, I had one and another one. Well, it won't hurt. And, you know, before long, I was back to daily drinking again. That that relapse caused me cost cost me my a 17 year marriage. Because she saw me get sober and saw what what I looked like sober and then uh, all it took was a slip and she just wasn't willing to gamble on that I'd make it back. So speaking of uh, nowadays, what goes on in the life of Ash? What what do you do to uh, what's participating in your recovery look like? I've got a good sponsor. I text them every morning, third step or seven step uh, prayers, sometimes both. Uh, has me go through the promises and uh, regularly kind of pick one. And then uh, the next day I'll talk about it, you know, how I look forward to that promise or, or maybe how that promise is already proven true once and can again. Um, I meet with my sponsor uh, once a week uh, for about an hour and a half uh, to try to go to at least at least a meeting every other day um, after uh, after slipping up last December. Uh, yeah. I made, made a meeting every day for 30 days. Y'all having face-to-face meetings there? Yeah. Yeah, everything in Kansas opened up. I mean, we still have Zoom meetings for the people high risk, the ones that don't want to be there. You know, yep. but, yeah, we're, we're pushing the occupancy card quite a ways. And, you know, the resounding one, and, and this is when the guy with the oxygen mask at 74 years old with 50 years of sobriety stands up and you can barely hear him. And he's got two hearing aids and he goes, now, damn it, I know what all this is, but I got a disease I know will kill me. So I'm not going to be not showing up here because of one that might kill me. And he yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, well, it was a very interesting dynamic that the uh, they closed down the AA meetings here, but the liquor stores remained open. And I know why that is uh, from a healthcare standpoint. Uh, the healthcare system didn't need however many hundred thousand detox and alcoholics hitting it at the same time that all this stuff was going on. So better to keep them drinking. Uh, I mean, they were going to get it one way or the other. Uh, this just saved them from breaking down the doors. 
Yep. Because, uh, I think you and I both know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know how I am. If you tried taking alcohol away from me, right? It's never yeah. going to end well for you. There've just been another bootlegged market pop up, and anything else to uh, to uh, make sure that flow of alcohol kept on going. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, if you don't mind, uh, on this slip relapse, whatever you want to call it, uh, in December, do you still have the same sponsor? I do. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of that, I think, and, and he also has brought in my grand sponsor. Uh, who's an old Navy vet that uh, it's really helped bring some additional perspective. So we're smart. working back through the steps again. Uh, I, you know, I did miss quite a bit on my first, uh, fourth, fifth step. And uh, so. Yeah, uh, I think that's when it says more will be disclosed. Uh, I think uh, my, my teachings are that I'm going to be going through those steps a number of times in my six years. I went through them three times now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was stuff I wasn't, I, I, I there was things on my, particularly on my second go around that I just was not ready to look at on my first go around. Uh, and my sponsor knew that and, uh, but didn't push me on those things. Uh, um, yeah, I always look at it like, uh, he had me, he took me through the steps the first time and it's like cleaning out a horse stall, went in there with a pitchfork and grabbed up all the big clumps and, and got all them out. And then, the second time we went back in with a broom and scooped up some of the hay. And third time we were down to clean and actually getting down to where you could see the floor in a few places and, uh, you know, just keep on knocking away at that. Um, I like going through the steps. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I slipped up after treatment a couple of different times, struggling going through them and, and uh, my, my sponsor is relatively, you know, newer, newer at that with somebody. We're, we're all different people with the same problem. And so he had never dealt with someone um, with, with the same everyday struggles that I have with my business mm. um, and with additional struggles, you know, with numerous LLCs and just financial woes here and there. It all boils down to the same problems. But one of the big miracles that I realized here just a few weeks ago was when I got this huge business bomb just dropped in my lap as far as like impending doom, potentially, um, that I knew if I did nothing would explode in my face. Um, But I knew that if I went at it from my alcoholic mind and just started digging in there and manipulating and doing my thing to it, it would also blow up in my face. So I called my sponsor and then uh, he called my grand sponsor and and I, and they're like, well, first of all, I don't know shit about real estate, you know, or running a brokerage or, you know, all the various other aspects of this problem. And I said, guys, and that's why I'm calling you. I don't, I know that stuff. I need to know, you know, with my disease in mind, how do I dismantle this one piece at a time? And how do I deal with it? How do I make peace with it? You know, and, and uh, how do I, how do I make it through one way or the other and not drink and <laughs> And that was a miracle for me to pick up the phone and call somebody that, you know what I mean? That was going to help me with the how. Yeah. Um, and they did big time, you know, they helped me focus on, okay, you need to focus on the people that you're responsible for, you know, your employees, your agents, your, you know, these, you make the right decisions on what's best for them and you're going to be just fine. 
Mm-hmm. But the minute you start making decisions based on what's best for you and putting them on the back burner, you drink. Yep. <laughs> like, wow, that was, I need to hear that. Because, man, when I started looking at the problem, I was amazed how many opportunities there were where, well, I could do this to better my situation. You see what I mean? Yeah. I and do. if I wouldn't have called my sponsor, I don't know where I'd be right now. I'm, I'm a hell of a lot better um, situated as far as how things are and at peace with things than I was yeah. um, when, I, when I first got dealt. That's all that we thing, you know. Uh, I, you know, I know that the the top end of the pyramid has the higher power, which is this, most of us say, a lot of us say God, whatever this universal power is up there, but uh, there's, there's a higher, higher power aspect of the we too. So that when you can go through, because I can't see myself very well, uh, but others can see me. And especially if I've allowed them to see me like we do with a sponsor, uh, he can guide me and help me navigate things that on my own, I wouldn't be able to do, uh, at least, uh, you know, with any kind of, uh, efficiency, any kind of effectiveness. Yeah. I uh my bottom was breaking in a house and getting caught and I was broke in and just stealing pain pills and uh and I remember that night I, I actually escaped. They caught me but I got away. They knew who it was, so it wasn't like I had truly escaped. And I was walking around the streets of my hometown uh in the middle of the night with the same phrase going up through my head constantly. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And then, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I can uh, navigate this thing and come out. Okay. For me, um, there come a time a little bit later that, uh, I hit that wall again in sobriety early on. And I remember those for that phrase come into my head and I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I was like, yes, you do call your sponsor and it was that simple uh of of some action to take that wasn't based on me and uh it seems like every time i call him and involve that piece of the higher power in my decision making process uh my decisions work out a lot better You know, one of the things I struggle with being in business um, and, and trying to learn this program has been action because so much, so much for me was revolved around stop doing things like everything, <laughs> Yeah, you know, like just, just stop. Like, yeah, stop drinking, but also stop manipulating, stop dictating stop correcting just stop so i did you know and i don't know if you've ever i, I don't know if you ever clean game or tried to clean a bird or something yep i'm a hunter um, but but we were just talking with uh, my sponsor and i go you know what's funny here is because again i'm trying to get my confidence back um to do the things and make the deals and, and go I've got, I've got to turn some really big deals to kind of save my business here uh, and it's right on the precipice of sink or swim um and so he's like you need that confidence back i go i get that but it's like i threw out the baby with the bathwater. i come in here trying to get to a firm foundation so i've just taken everything and just thrown all the shit out all of it and you know you go from being the top salesperson to like 
you got no confidence because, well, maybe they saw this or maybe this or, you know, mm-hmm. um, I go, so now I go, it's such a fine line. Everything in recovery is such a fine line. Like, what do you know where to walk? Like, oh, on one side over here is, is you're planning for the future. That's good. But on the other side is, oh, but, but you're setting up expectations for yourself. That's bad. Okay. Well, shit, how do I, you know? And then, so in this one, it was the difference between confidence and cocky. Yeah, arrogance. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out how I can take out my, you know, take out my knives and start cleaning away my confidence without digging into any of that cockiness. It's going to ruin it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then over here, I got to I got to start carving out my goal setting, you know. But I I, I can't I can't cut into any of the uh, setting expectations stuff because it'll spoil the meat, you know. Like that's that's what my program right now is so much for me is is in helping me to get back the healthy doses of everything because and then i was telling them the other analogy i love is like when i get up in the morning you know that day i've got a tightrope to walk i'm an alcoholic it's what i gotta do it sucks but it's the reality if i want to live a healthy life i gotta live on this tightrope of happy you know in balance and when i get up and i say my prayers and i give my things and I say my third and fourth and seventh step prayers, you know, I'm going to walk out of these doors doing thy will be done. It's like, it's like what I'm doing. I'm picking up that balancing thing, you know, that balancing pole that the tightrope walkers carry. Yep. That's an analogy and, was going through my head. But there you go. So like I, I can make it and, and I can make it all the way through my day. So long as I hold on to that thing and, and it's learning every day. It's like, I make it a few steps further before something comes across my phone. And, and I'm like, oh, one sec. And I put that son of a bitch down to the side and I stare at my phone. As stupid as that sounds, somebody trying to walk a tightrope would do that. I do it every day. Yeah. You know, and then I'm wondering why I'm bouncing back and forth all over the place about to fall off. You know, and I'm like, oh, and hopefully I reach over and I grab that bar again. You know, and uh, my sponsor was like, Ash, any time throughout the day, you can just start your day over. I was like, yeah. what? He goes, he goes, just go right back to the third or seventh step prayer. Just start, start your day over. You get yep. out of whack. And I'm Wonderful like, tool. Never thought about starting my day over. That's yeah. Interesting. That is a wonderful tool, you know, and there's so many like these. And, you know, like how simple that is, you know, uh, like so many other things in here, you know, and, uh, simple but not easy. Uh, and you'd say earlier, you know, this whole, this whole basis of, the past and the future, you know, and that's the one day at a time thing. And you, um, my son just come to his locked door. He just got off his job at pizza hut. Uh, he can go over and push the button on, he can go push the button at the garage door. Uh, this one day at a time living, you know, is, is Mm -hmm. crucial for me, you know, and then like when the pandemic hit, uh, it, it really came true. It almost feels like the last five years of recovery was all for de- navigating the beginning of that, of having a program and not worrying about tomorrow or what's going to happen. What, what, what am I, what am I doing today? What is my job? What is my focus to be today? And there's a, there's just an endless supply of these little operating principles um, that I had to consciously reach for. You know, uh, some of them are, you know, there's an airline in the book that says it, you know, uh, becomes a working part of the mind. Um, so it has, and it's better than, it, than it's better than it ever has been. It continues to uh, get stronger and stronger that, that 
that muscle that uh, that we use to uh, walk this walk. Uh, but at times I have to direct myself. I have to uh, consciously reach up and, you know, sometimes I do have things and my sponsor will remind me of those simple little tools about what, you know, to just for today and uh, starting your day over and get those little reminders on, uh, on these tools that we use. Everything cuts both ways though. You know, you were saying something a second ago, you know, like you're talking about the, you know, the, I can't, I can't disregard my future. I must prepare for my future at the same time of uh, living just in today. Uh, it's kind of the, the big dichotomy there in the, in the program is the whole surrender to win. Uh, the pendulum swings both ways in, in a lot of places and it's finding that sweet spot in the balance. When you were talking about walking the tightrope, I, my mind was going to that the more, uh, the better I prepare myself for the day, the longer the pole I get, you know, if you get a little short yeah. pole, it's hard to walk, but if you get one of those, it least appears, I've never done this, but from my observation, it looks like if you get one of those really, really long balancing poses, that looks like that's the easier way to do it. So the better I prepare for my day in the morning, uh, the longer pole I'm handed to use for walking the tightrope today. Yeah, an early analogy that I used was the road. You know, you kind of start off walking with your program and walking in in, in the program, and and uh, you're trying to you know drive a bike on a on a curb, you know, yeah, and to stay on it, and it's tough, and, and most people, you know, they fall a couple of times, um, but then it, you know, and then it goes to a to an alley, to a road, to to highway to an interstate eventually you know you're in downtown denver or something yeah. uh, so, but but you got to pay attention to those rumble strips and that's what my sponsor would be talking about the rumble strips when you start to get to stray one side or the other don't matter how big the road is how long you've been sober how much you've studied the big book and, and all the you know all the various different resources to, to enlighten you on on your spiritual recovery but like it don't matter how wide the road is you take your hands off the wheel you know eventually you, you can get you can get off track really fast <laughs> yep yep so i'll um, use a sailing analogy that you know when you're sailing you're you're never going to go in a straight line you can't and you're so what this whole thing of life is for me today is making these course corrections checking my compass off often am i heading in the right direction nope oh, well okay i'm gonna need to do a little adjusting in my course and so, you know, the needle sways less and less today, you know, once in a while early on, or I would find that my needle was pointing the complete wrong direction. Well, it's hardly ever doing that anymore. You know, it's in the general direction that I'm heading, uh, but I just constantly have to make course corrections. Well, Dan, you know, you know, probably better than I do. We, uh, this is where a lot of my military guys, you know, a few years ago before shit hit the fan in my personal life, you know, they'd be like, well, how are you, how are you doing so good? You know, we're all jacked up and like, guys, listen, we are all just one really bad deal from being in the same damn dark place, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, in 20, 30, 40 years of sobriety, I'm sorry, but life has a, has a tendency that, especially if we're just, if we're going day to day, depending on our own strength and not a higher power of strength, um, this world has all kinds of trick shots that it will throw at us and 
and get us real twisted and real bass backwards real quick. Um, and that's where the higher power comes in, you know, that, that keeps us on course. And, and even when, we, even when we think we need to go east, uh, that's, that's, that's not always the best because we yeah. don't know, we don't know the winds that are coming. Yeah. yeah. Well, I uh, really appreciate you coming on tonight, man. And I uh, would like to talk to you some more. I know I think we'll be keeping in contact together to, at some level. I will, uh, yeah. if you're interested, uh, you could check out our my that men's meeting I'm talking about. So anytime you might want to hit a Zoom meeting on a Tuesday night, uh, you've got an open invitation there. Uh, Usually when I close this thing out, I always ask if uh, you got a message to a newcomer or any kind of, I call it a concluder. Uh, I don't know if you listen to any other podcast, but I listen to a guy who's a, a hunter named Steve Ranella. And at the end of his podcast, he goes around the room and has everybody say their concluder. Uh, and so I've lifted that from him. Hmm. If you got a, uh, any concluding thoughts, any kind of message you want to deliver or experience strength and hope thing to go out with? Yeah, I guess, uh, I'm not, it sounds like you've got some, you've got some people that listen that, that may not, may not relate to the alcohol or the drugs or, or the things of that nature. I, I would just, uh, I would encourage, I would encourage everybody because I think, I think everybody almost, I can speak for me, but, look for the band-aids and the things that that we we go to like i said it could just be loud music the things when you go to turn off your mind um and and the things that that we turn to that to to avoid the difficult things in life because if there's one thing i've learned in recovery it's about facing those difficult things is what's brought me the most joy it's brought me the most hope it's brought me the most um clear idea of of uh of what my potential really is. Yeah, man, I like that. Uh, it spurred a thought and the, and the doggone thought left me and that happens fairly often. Um, I don't know. There's We have the TSSR movement, so that's some people, but probably the majority of the people that are listening are actual uh alcoholics and addicts but i do get more and there's a lot of people who uh they they're hearing this they're hearing that if we could make it out of what we made it out of by using these tools they're not so far into the hole that you know it gives them some hope that it could happen for them too uh yeah. that you know because we were further down in the hole than they are well, and that progress not perfection thing is key my, my sponsor actually has that tattooed on his arm does he? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he does. Cause that's the, that's, that's why a lot of people won't even start, you know, it's like they won't even start because they're afraid that they won't get it perfect. And I mean, boy, if that ain't an alcoholic, so yeah. it's like, you yeah. know, slipping up and slipping up like I did, you know, just over a month ago. Um, it, it doesn't mean that I've lost everything I've learned. No, I just meant that I turned right around the next morning with a, with a really bad headache and called my sponsor. You know, yeah. and uh, said I should have called him twelve hours ago. But well, you, uh, you know, you made it back. You know, and that's really the thing about you know, it's not how many times you fall, it's how many times you get up. There's some little sayings around that, and uh, 
And the bigger thing is, is that a lot of people don't make it back. Uh, I lost a buddy and uh, one of our brothers, one of our close friends, uh, got a year of sobriety after trying for 10 years and then walked away from the program again. And this time he had a vehicle accident and, uh, and it took his life. And, uh, and the alcohol was a factor in the accident. Uh, that's just my most recent example of uh, somebody not making it back after a slip. So I'll congratulate you for uh, having the wherewithal to, to, to get right back on. And you're right. You don't lose the recovery. You, you so what you change the sobriety date and then that's less than, you know, we're not, we don't want to do that either, but the stuff that you've learned didn't go anywhere and you just get back up and go. Um, I know some people that are chronic relapsers and have been for long periods, but their lives are better today than they used to be. And, uh, but they've just never been able to maintain any kind of long-term sobriety. Um, I do my best not to get judgy about that. Uh, We all have our journeys and, and I had to allow those people to, uh, to have theirs rather than me think I'm going to direct it. Uh, I can't direct mine, let alone theirs. Well, um, once again, I do thank you for coming on the show and, and, uh, and sharing your story with us. Uh, it's a little cliche in a sense, but I do thank you for your service to our country. And, uh, that's a, that's a big deal to me. And it's a, it's a big deal to me that, that you're out there, uh, helping other people, uh, deal with the aftermath of, of, of that experience. Uh, I won't even pretend to, uh, imagine what that element of your, you know, your, your story, uh, really means and, uh, or, you know, I won't pretend to know about that. I can only uh, barely imagine. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. I, uh, I have two phrases that I lifted and I say it at the end of every, cause, uh, I'm not, I won't pretend that I have, that I know any of this, anything that I am saying is not an original thought. It's something that I picked up along the path. Um, and one of them is, is, uh, that if you're not having a blast in your own recovery, in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. And the other one is, uh, I just like to thank everybody out there for uh, allowing Ash and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner tonight. Peace out.